Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dr. Sean O'Mara is the lead partner at Lantu Solutions, a Minneapolis-based medical startup that optimizes patient health by leveraging health and disease biomarkers. Dr. O'Mara also founded Guardian 24-7, an innovative medical service company providing elite concierge medical care to high-end net worth individuals and royalty. In addition, Dr. O'Mara has been an undercover narcotics officer focused on organized crime, a criminal prosecutor, and physician in the U.S. Army, where he provided medical support to senior government officials and high-level foreign dignitaries. Dr. O'Mara has committed himself to helping people improve their health and creating true and effective role models based on health. He's convinced that the solution to a healthier and longer life lies in understanding and positively impacting your body's key performance indicators, or KPIs, by, mi- by making modest adjustments to your diet and exercise habits. He believes that much of the chronic disease we experience can be avoided or reversed when we pay attention to the correct and sometimes overlooked biomarkers of true health. Dr. Sean O'Mara, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio. Hey, well, great to be with you, Casey, and your audience. It's such an honor to host you. We mentioned that you have experience working with very high-end government officials, including a U.S. president. My first question to you is, was that care, like, orders of magnitude vastly, vastly better than the, than the health care that most of us can access? Yeah, so really, first, that's a great question, and uh, I, uh, I've never had that one before, but it's something I think about routinely because I have taken care of not just one, but two presidents and vice presidents and secretaries of state. So uh, President Clinton, President Bush, um, Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice. So quite a few very high-end individuals. And it was intriguing to me because at that time I was active duty army, emergency medicine position. And Physicians that provide care, always physicians who provide care to the senior executive service, which is the president, the vice president, they are in the secretary of state, they're active duty military. So it's just uh, the way it is we we set up for our our constitutional government. So they're active duty military, they provide that care. But what's interesting is, while that care, that capability is immense, I mean, we had the capacity to render immediate intervention, medical intervention for a gunshot, a stabbing, a heart attack, a stroke, an aortic dissection. We were prepared to crack open the chest of the most important person in the world to provide immediate care. What wasn't done was not anything to really care in terms of preventing disease and reversing disease within the most important person or most important people in the world. So for those that are out there, you know, listening on that point, I, I at the time was very impressed with our capability. It moved <clears throat> like this uh, interventional bubble around these people. Uh, and I thought it was super intriguing. And I set up a company after I left uh, the military um, it, where we and a few other White House positions set up this very elaborate company that we provided the same same care and even better care than the president would get. Uh, we were building, you know, um, multi-million, like in one case, $125 million private hospital subterranean underneath the ground, uh, just dedicated to this one person and their family. So this was an extraordinary capability, but at, and that really started me thinking about how could you use that equipment to prevent a heart attack, to prevent a stroke, <clears throat> and uh, ran into some obstacles. A very There aren't a lot of people that are really interested in preventing disease, including within my own company, uh, physicians I was working with, and my clients. Uh, so if you're listening today and you think, well, that's super cool, I'd like to have my own hospital. Well, it didn't really matter much. I mean, it mattered, I suppose, if they had a heart attack or a stroke or, uh, or, or got shot or something, but um, by and large, they accumulated chronic disease to the extent that pretty much everybody else does. And, and I would say even more so because when you get that kind of money, you're so hedonistic, pleasure-seeking, that you make poorer decisions than, say, a lot of other people. So nothing to really be enamored of uh, with regard to those people because uh, quite a few of those same people are dead. They've now suffered you know, heart attacks and, and uh, have died from cancer because 
you know, they haven't concentrated on preventing disease and reversing disease. So that was my first foray and kind of introduction into, you know, wanting to get interested in health. And then I ran into, you know, a super healthy person and they told me about a dietary intervention, which at that time was the paleo diet. And I'd never heard of it. I read about it, got it right away. I didn't have to really think about it right away. I saw the logic of it. Uh, it's sort of like a Rubik's cube. People that play around with Rubik's cubes, they see pathways that the rest of us don't. I saw that with regard to that nutritional intervention and paleo, cutting out processed foods. Made inherent sense. It was not hard. It was very easy for me to do that. And uh, from, went from paleo to keto to carnivore. The more I cut out carbs, the healthier I got, the better performing I got. So um, led me to today where I, by and large, eat um, a strictly carnivore diet with um, uh, fermented vegetables as typically kind of like a garnish for my uh, my dietary interventions. And I've gone on uh, since that early introduction into health and studying um, what you got to do to begin to to become ultimately healthy. So. Uh, we, we got a grant for the National Science Foundation to reverse chronic disease and to identify effective biomarkers. So if you're going to reverse chronic disease, you got to have metrics, measures of disease and what you got to do to, to identify the most effective strategies. So we had to test strategies, see what really worked. And so these biomarkers and biometrics that we identified were really important to figure out what really worked. So you can't just make arthritis disappear. You can't make heart disease disappear without <clears throat> knowing the, the most effective strategies. So some of those biomarkers we looked at were visceral fat, which is a, a deep a fat that's deep within your abdomen. You do not know how much you have unless you get scanned. And you can, you can be scanned pretty cheap with a DEXA scan, but I'd say save your $100. Because I've never seen anybody get a DEXA scan and change their life. And same cholesterol panel. Nobody has ever gotten uh, a cholesterol panel and changed their life, uh, get their cholesterol under control and change their life. But if you look inside your body using either a CT or an MRI, and you see that visceral fat that in many cases makes up more of your abdomen than your body. Uh, does you're, you're basically that you got this large parasite growing inside of you that you didn't know about? Well, that's that's arguably life changing if you understand that it's a parasite instead of just understanding that it's a bunch of white and you know how bad it is, then you can begin to work on getting rid of it. So, visceral fat was the first biomarker we identified. Then we went on to study cardio fat or heart fat, fat around the heart. And we also looked at liver fat, uh, fatty liver disease. And then we started looking at um, myomyostosis, which is fatty deposition with the muscles, uh, these streaks of fat. And everybody's acquainted with this. If you've ever gone to a steak shop or gone to a grocery store and bought steak, you, if you see a steak that's marbled, myomyostosis, myomuscles, steatosis is fat. So it's fat within the muscle, not around the muscle, but literally deposited within the muscle tissue. Now you might think that tastes good, but it's inflammation, it's disease in the, in the body of that cow. And we would see it on MRI as inflammation and disease within the body of people. And nobody talks about it. You, if you've been listening to uh, if listening today uh, to this and you've ever had a, a CT of your body or an MRI, they would have seen this at some point if it scanned any of your skeletal muscle. And an abdominal CT also scans abdominal muscle or abdominal MRI. So it's, it's in there, but it's not reported. Visceral fat's not reported. Fatty infiltrates isn't reported. Um, fat around the heart isn't reported. And the reason is it's not, not taught to physicians in medical school. And so you might ask, well, you know, if uh, Sean O'Meara, Dr. O'Meara thinks this is so important uh, and it's not taught in medical school, it can't be. Wrong. 
it's not taught in medical school because medical school is a system that's set up to make some scratch for big pharma. Big pharma sets the curriculum what is taught in medical school. Ever thought about what is taught in medical schools? They're not going to teach anything that really reverses disease and improves the quality of life of people. We can, we can reverse chronic disease easily, very achievable. I have a $1.2 million grant from the National Science Foundation proving that we can reverse chronic disease. And those interventions are basically just eating a healthy life, uh, eating, living a healthy lifestyle, eating a healthy diet, exercise in a certain way, uh, being resilient, uh, making sure you decrease you know, chronic stress, you know, these, these kind of basic things, and you'll uh, vanquish visceral fat and vanquish chronic disease from your body. But the compromise to the curriculum in medical school is just so great, influenced by big pharma and even health, health insurance industry that makes make a huge amount of money. The bottom line is the largest part of our economy, Casey, is healthcare. It's, it's bigger than um, Amazon. It's bigger than uh, IT. It's bigger than oil. It's bigger than energy. Literally healthcare. And over 90% of that is treating chronic disease, which is entirely preventable. So literally, the world's largest problem is what people are making money off of perpetuating. It's completely preventable. And I say it's the world's and humanity's largest problem because nothing, nothing else, if you're listening today, nothing else decreases human productivity more than chronic disease. Nothing reduces the quality of life more than chronic disease. Nothing reduces the productivity of, a, of commerce more than chronic disease and employees. Nothing costs us more than chronic disease. And nothing kills more human beings globally than chronic disease. And if you're listening today and you've heard that for the first time, ask yourself, why in the heck have I never heard that? And why isn't it, that being discussed? That is bananas. I've been in this world for long enough to know that that's the case, but I love how you concluded that by saying, if you've never heard that message before, it's going to blow your mind. The medical system is designed to keep you sick and alive. I want to make you diabetic at age 20 and keep you alive until age 90 so I can feed you pills and procedures that whole time. Is that correct? No, that's exactly it. And uh, if you're listening today and that seems kind of crazy, well, I'm going to ask you what your experience is, listener. Think about all the people that are older than you in your life. Or if you're already older, think about yourself and your, your, your colleagues or whatever, family members. And here's what happened. As they start going to doctors, their bag of pills start growing, more and more medications. And oh, by the way, they start performing less. They start aching more and they start accumulating more chronic disease. Well, let me ask you, why in the world do we tolerate, we consumers tolerate a segment of service to consumers that just is horrible? You just go and you get worse. And we would keep taking our car to the automobile, you know, garage maintenance service if they just kept destroying the car, making it worse and making more money. No. But or the same thing with any other consumer based service or product. If it was just every time you went, you slowly got worse and worse, we wouldn't put up with it. But the medical industry has foisted upon us, and I think they're exploiting in part the preference, I call it like almost a lazy gene of people wanting shortcuts, and they'll take a shortcut rather than. Uh, walk in a long way that's better to take a pill because they're blinded to all those side effects and problems and the accumulation of chronic disease. But your goal should be every year of my life, I get better. So I will posit to you and your audience that literally as you get older and more gray hair, you become better performing. You become better living. And I know it's a radical concept, but people tend to believe that they're at their best in their 20s. Wrong answer. For 4 million years, the highest performers were gray-haired men and women. 
because they did not have chronic disease and they had accumulated knowledge and skill sets to perform exceptionally well. We see a tiny glimmer of this in high performers like Tom Brady. Now, he may not have the gray hair that I have, but he has dedicated himself to becoming more healthy. You know, you could argue some of the things he, he with some of the things he does and doesn't do, but he is high performing and he's older. So if you're listening today, the future, I believe, is an awareness of the biomarkers and biometrics that are available to us that we can follow to eradicate chronic disease and the accumulated knowledge of life experience, how to live better so that we perform better, live better. And that should be what is attractive uh, to people. But today we value youth. Um, the youth don't know because they're too young. And if you're uh, a 40, 50 year, year old soccer mom that's overweight, you're going to some 20 something personal trainer or health coach, you're not going to get better because their ideas about being better are based on a 20 year old's experience. You got to follow very, very fit, very, very high performing uh, older people with gray hair whose appearance and performance validate that they know how to live well. So I define health based on two metrics. Health equals mathematically an expression of how you appear and how you perform. And that is the base of the level of health that you have. Your capacity for imparting that knowledge is really predicated on experience. So as you get older, you'll become more effective. So the most effective influencers of the future will be gray-haired, very attractive, very high-performing older men and women, as it was for 4 million years until processed foods came along when we started planting grains and consuming them. And so now older people look terrible. And why do the young people not follow the older people? Because they look terrible and they perform terrible. When I was younger, you know, a young man, like say five, six, seven years of age, older people weren't so riddled with chronic disease, not as bad as they are today, obesity skyrocketing, but they were still bad and we respected the elderly you know, more than we do today. Today, nobody visits the elderly. They sit in, you know, nursing homes, uh, senior care centers. Uh, the door opens, every face turns to the door to see if it's somebody coming to visit them. Very, very sad situations. And the older people can't impart knowledge the way they used to because their face and their body says, pay no attention to me. I don't know how to live well. I haven't lived well. But you want if, to, to be a better influencer. And if you're you know, on Instagram, you're uh, in social media, and you want to be an ultimate influencer for longer, then you better maintain your health by having a better appearance. And I'm not talking makeup, because that's only going to work for so long. You also need to have high performance. And all the makeup in the world and, and clothing is not going to help you perform better. So you have to figure out how you live, lifestyle choices, and that's why I really like social media and your space and what people are doing to help bring attention and awareness that it's all about lifestyle choices to influence how healthy you are. Wow. So I just read an article about Instagram face. So people using different filters or getting different plastic surgery to basically combine all the best features of like a bunch of different races to make this like perfect like Instagram face. And it's like, that's so ridiculous. When I look at you, I look at Sean Baker, I look at Brad Kearns, I look at Dr. Wiedemann. These people are like 50s, 60s, you know, Mark Sisson, he's paddling his paddleboard in the ocean around France and enjoying life. Dr. Wiedemann is doing cartwheels on the beach. Like these people are not just like, you know, slowly being more decrepit over time. They're thriving. They're in their best years. And I think for myself, I'm 38. I feel the best that I've ever felt now. I look forward to aging. I would not go back to my 20s or early 30s at all. I, you guys are amazing examples. And if you look at people who live and eat in this certain way, that's what happens. They reverse age, it seems. If you, Especially when you compare it to the delta of everybody else who is just like completely going down the tank. It's terrible. Yeah. No, really, really, really good points. In fact, uh, you know, on that, if you asked all those individuals um, that you just mentioned – how long do you want to live? They're going to say, 
130, 150, if they could, you know, live that long, they'd want to say that. But if you ask the average 50-year-old and 60-year-old, how, how long do you want to live where you tell them, I can work with you and get you to live to be 130. And I've done this every day, all day long for years in a kind of a, a, a practice, a primary care practice where patients would come in. I would routinely say that to them. This is how they'd respond. Oh, no, I, I don't want to live that long. The reason is the misery factor. Okay, as chronic disease besets your life, you become miserable and you're not happy. Your quality of life has reduced your outlook and hope for the future. The message I like to impart is to the vast majority of people listening right now. If you live properly, make the life better lifestyle and form choices, your best years are literally ahead of you. And. Once you get people to understand that, start living that way, they improve their quality of life. Then they don't want it. They don't shudder at the notion of living to be 130 or 150 years of age. Um, I don't know how long will people live. And the most most important thing to me is not so much longevity, but quality of life. And that's starting to get more attention. But quality of life really is predicated upon the amount of disease that one person or a person tolerates. The system is potentiated, you know, set up to encourage disease because it's highly profitable. It's the largest part of our economy, as we said earlier. So uh, there's time, there's need for a rebellion. One of the things that I think has to happen, honestly, Casey, is with regard to those, those people you, you set out is we have role models. I've, I've watched, you know, I've, I've done lots of interesting things throughout my life. I have uh, observed that we can find role models for anything. The best football players, the best uh, violinists, uh, the best gymnasts, the best artists, the best musicians, the best actors. People could routinely knock these things out. If you go up to you know average people, they'll, they'll be able to tell you who the best at, at anything, attorneys or whatever. But when it comes to, if you walked up to the average person on the street, tell me who the healthiest man and or the healthiest woman in the world is, tell me somebody's really healthy. They'd be like, uh, well, uh, uh, oh, well. So how are we ever going to begin influencing young people to be excited about the critically important objective of living a healthy life without having these role models? So I stand for the notion that it's, it's, it's an important objective that we identify what health is, we promote it. And uh, one idea I floated around out there, and I'll just run it by the audience, is the world's healthiest man contest. Ought to be done. We ought to identify who the healthiest man, who the healthiest woman in the world is, find out the metrics, and create a competition. That's going to bring the alphas out. Everybody's going to want to do that. And you can also do things for everything. Who's the healthiest attorney? Who's the healthiest you know, violinist? Who's the healthiest football player? you know, create all sorts of, you know, competition and buzz. But the, the important objective there is we need to promote awareness of health and create a deep attraction and a longing within the younger population and within contemporaries. So people, you know, uh, my age, you know, 59, look at other, you know, like the healthiest men and women and say, I want to be like that person. And oh, by the way, it's easily achieved, all free. None of this, everything I do is not something you got to go to a doctor and have surgery or buy medicine. It's lifestyle choices. It's all how you live your life is, is the greatest influence on how well you're going to live your life and how much you're going to enjoy it. That's amazing. I absolutely love that. I want to go back to something you said earlier about the intramuscular fat and fat itself. What I gather from that is basically I want to be hard to kill. So if I'm in the Donner party, I want to be the last one killed. And and secondly, I want to not taste very good for those people. I want to be very poor tasting. So my question to you is when you referred, especially to visceral fat and that intramuscular fat, you, you referred to it as a parasite. That's a really strong statement. And most people say, yeah, like, yeah, 
I've got I've got fat here on the side of my arm and it jiggles and I don't like it and I want it gone. What what is the difference? What what does it matter? Isn't fat just fat? Doesn't it just sit on our body? What's the difference between visceral fat and fat that I can see on my arms or in my hips? Yeah, so really good question for your your awareness and your audience awareness. Subcutaneous fat has been shown to be in studies um, as not metabolically healthy. So it doesn't really play a major contribution in your metabolic health, so your physiology. It's best thought of as simply an accumulation of stored energy. So it's white fat, fat cells that are immediately underneath your skin. Now, if there's any problem with it right now, what we can say is that you tend to consume more calories than you really need. And so when that happens, you store that sub-Q fat underneath you. So there's a principle of management called just-in-time management, just-in-time business, where you're more efficient and you get things in there. Things are not being stored or kept around because that's less efficient. So that principle is a little violated, but the health principle, you don't get the compromise of your physiology, your hormones, your endocrine system, your cardiovascular system, arteries, veins, capillaries, uh, organs, muscle, none of those are significantly impacted by the accumulation of subcutaneous fat. Visceral fat differs immensely from subcutaneous fat because visceral fat is metabolically active. So what that means is visceral fat is white fat that is actively secreting continuously cytokines, adipokines, and inflammatory molecules. And we only, we only are aware of them to the extent that we look for them. There are going to be many more that we're not aware of. Uh, an interesting protein that was seen to be uh, produced by visceral fat is a protein um, that literally goes out, fracletine, that literally goes out into the periphery and it scavenges for a type of cell called an NK killer T cell. These are cells in your immune system. And so these killer T cells go out and they're your first line and your best line of defense against cancer. So what they do is they go out and capture uh, and, and, and sequester these killer T cells in in visceral fat, it captures it, brings it back in from the periphery, so it can't do its job. You know where where these T cells go out, otherwise detect cancer. And oh, by the way, if you're not aware and you're listening today, you're not a physician. Most physicians are aware that cancer exists in the human body continuously. You got cancer. It is but for the action of your immune system. More, most importantly, your NK killer T cells that keeps that cancer from growing and spreading and becoming lethal, problematic. But that's what happens. Visceral fat plays this very sinister role where it goes out and prevents um, these killer killer T cells from destroying and correcting cancer, and it sequesters it. Uh, So that's just one aspect of chronic disease, cancer. But it's all the accumulation of these adipokines, cytokines, inflammatory molecules They're constantly being pumped out into our body and degrading us. So here's an interesting thing. If you're a young female, I speak to young females because here's what my experience, I'm a male. I think a lot of women look at their pictures. If you're 40, 50, 60, 70 years of age, and you look at your photograph when you were 16, 17, 18, 20 years of age, and you you long to look like that again, the answer why your face has literally become unattractive is not because of age. It's not aging or becoming older. It's because of chronic disease and you simply don't know it. And to the extent that you've become less attractive, it is most, the biggest responsibility is visceral fat, causing inflammation, making your face appear inflamed and changing the shape of your face. So one thing I like to tell people is if you want to get healthy, you got to get in, you want to get in shape, get in shape with your body and the shape of your face. And literally, I can see 
these out of shape faces, these inflammatory faces, it's on my story today. Um, somebody did, you know, pointed out how faces change. These nasal labial creases, you know, be, you know, right around your, your upper lip and, and around your nose and your cheeks, there's this line. These creases get more pronounced as from the influence of chronic disease. So uh, particularly um, visceral fat. So face, the shape of faces return. Now, my skin and my hair will always signal that I'm an older person, but my shape of my face looks much more youthful and resembles more the shape that I had when I was younger. And so does my body. I mean, my, my body is, you know, I don't have this anteriorly displaced dad bod with this big, big belly projecting forward uh, because of uh, I've eliminated visceral fat and now my muscles work a lot better. And I, you know, not, not to brag, but you know, I, I have a, a fair amount of musk muscularity at my age of nine. And I have averaged for the past 10, 12 years exercising probably about six minutes every other day. I don't spend a lot of time exercising. I just stay in great shape because mostly how I live, what I eat, what I don't eat is probably the best way to describe it. And so as a consequence, when I do exercise, my ROI, my return on my investment is exceedingly high. You have all these other people out exercising for a much longer period of time, uh, increasing uh, the amount of inflammation as a consequence of working out too much from elevated levels of reactive oxygen species and other things that, that are a consequence. So, you know, this, uh, this marker of, uh, that people have of trying to be overly muscular, I think is really a, an expression of body dysmorphic dysmorphism where people, you know, who object, uh, their objective is to get big and mus- muscular is similar to on the range of anorexics who want to look really, really thin. So, you know, somewhere in the middle, um, is a very fit, lean, highly efficient, uh, properly muscled, optimized muscle to fat ratios, uh, who performs exceedingly well. I, I was fascinated by the world's strongest man. I think he was in uh, Game of um, Game of Th- Game of Thrones or whatever whatever TV series that was, and this big muscle bound guy, and he could lift more weight than anybody else, but he couldn't do a single pull up. So. Yeah, yeah, he was strong and had tons of muscle, but his performance was suboptimal. I mean, that guy trying to climb through a window in a short period of time to rescue uh, school kids that are being shot at uh, is going to get a failure grade. Yeah. So you really want to be somebody who lives their life well. You don't want to have uh, no muscle and, and no fat and be anorexic. You don't want to be over muscle, muscular, muscular and have no fat. Um, you you want to you want to have high performance somewhere in the middle, and we got to start looking at that. So that's what kind of led me on my uh, research path with my research partner, uh, Dr. C.J. Zhang, who is the first person to identify visceral fat, at least to acquaint it with me. And uh, I was just discussing this with my twin brother earlier today when he discovered it. Uh, he he was like every every other physician at the time um, thought that any disease needs to be treated by eliminating fat to, to, to have a low-fat diet. That's what we're taught in medical school. And so many nutritionists still tout a low-fat diet. And so uh, when he first got started, he was telling people to, if you want to get rid of visceral fat, you got to eliminate fat. And so um, he would tell them that. And nobody got rid of visceral fat for a whole year. He kept scanning people. Nobody was getting better. And then this one guy walked in one day and behold, lo and behold, on his follow-up, he had eliminated a huge amount of visceral fat. So Dr. CJ was super excited. This is, Dr. CJ is Chinese. He says, oh, so you do what I tell you to do. And now you get fat. And the guy goes, no, I did just the opposite. I eliminated carbohydrates and ate a lot of fat. And Dr. CJ goes, oh, could this be true? <laughs> so he started researching, pulling, you know, the science instead of just relying on his position training and the curriculum that we were taught. And he realized, well, contrary to um, you know what we were taught in medical school, there is quite a bit of science uh, about maintaining a healthy diet that includes eating healthy fats 
and eliminating carbohydrates. So once we uh, started to evaluate that, then we saw, uh, and I came into the practice, he'd, he saw much greater reduction in visceral fat. And then when I came into it, I brought, brought in some other lifestyle choices, exercise, uh, fasting, um, using a sauna, doing cold, cold showers and cold plunges, and then uh, uh, living lifestyles to optimize heat shock protein, chap- chaperone proteins, and some of the things that, um, that we, we ultimately started to do for the National Science Foundation. So yeah, we've come, uh, we've come full circle uh, you know, in, our, in our research practice at Land2. Uh, we now promote healthy, uh, healthy consumption, or consumption of healthy fats and added a great deal of uh, other lifestyle recommendations in, in addition to uh, just diet. I mean, I was just thinking, it's so ironic and so funny that like, I'm thinking the average listener might be thinking like, okay, visceral fat is bad. So I don't want to eat fat because that's going to become visceral fat systematically, literally, that is impossible. It can't happen because of the way that fat is absorbed and, 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 and pushed into the lymphatic system and then delivered as fuel. It doesn't even get metabolized by the liver. When the chylomicron, where all of that fat is packaged up, returns to the liver, it can't have any fat left in it. So literally eating fat cannot contribute to visceral fat. It's it's incredible. Yeah. No, you're, you're exactly right. And we never saw uh, out of skinny 6,000 people it ever make in a contribution. Uh, but what we did see were carbohydrates. So especially processed carbohydrates and, and the, the most effective intervention we, we saw and we had uh, for limiting visceral fat was eliminating processed foods. We saw nothing else eliminated visceral fat as quickly as eliminating processed foods from the diet. The one physical intervention and the other intervention that we did see had dramatic uh, reduction in influence in visceral fat was a form of exercise uh, that almost nobody does today, but I like to promote it as sprinting. And sprinting is best defined as a maximum effort, highest speed that you can possibly run. So you can sprint at the age of 70, even though you run much slower than other people, you're sprinting. What defines that is maximum effort. So as a consequence or a result, I should say, of sprinting, there are some very interesting biological molecules released. One um, are heat shock proteins and these chaperone proteins that are associated with autophagy and beneficial uh, uh, reversal of chronic disease. So tissue starts being uh, corrected, being produced in a more healthy manner. So it literally is protein is being made by ribosomes unfolding, you know, like an envelope opening up. Chaperone proteins created by sprinting, but the most amount, in my opinion, I've seen a study looking exactly at heat shock proteins relative to, say, resistance training or something more uh, less intensity oriented like jogging uh, or, or yoga or something. The, the, the amount of uh, heat shock proteins are probably... A, elevated the most from maximum intensity exercise like sprinting. But for sure, there is an interesting study on a molecule called LACFI, which is relatively new discovered. It's a a hybrid molecule where two molecules uh, come together and they form this LACFI. It's one, a molecule of lactate connected to phenylalanine. So LACFI, L-A-C-P-H-E. You can Google it, read about it. It's highly desirable. It tells the body to build good tissue, muscle, and to get rid of bad tissue like visceral fat. So people who sprint, the studies show the highest amount of lactate comes from sprinters, the next from resistance training, weightlifting, and at the bottom was jogging. Okay, so jogging is really, in my opinion, if you're listening, I'll just come out and say, I'm putting my professional reputation Hey, waste of time. I don't have my clients doing it. Why? Because life is too short. You want to maximize your muscle tissue, get rid of fat. And what we saw is running doesn't get rid of fat. It so poorly produces lactate that you, for you know, probably metabolic physiological reasons, 
You just don't quickly get rid of visceral fat. In fact, we saw it as an obstacle, meaning if you were running and you cut out processed foods, you just don't get rid of visceral fat as fast as the couch potato. You're better off keeping your butt laying down on a couch, cutting out processed foods, than you are going out and jogging uh, for the purposes of getting rid of visceral fat. And this, and I, I haven't seen, uh, I haven't seen the study. We did it. We saw it anecdotally, time and time again. So we would tell those people stop running, and then start sprinting instead. Visceral fat left them. So today, my recommendation is precisely that: stop doing distance running, adopt a maximum maximum effort ex- exercise. I don't even call it high intensity exercise. It's a given. It's going to be high. But what's really the defining feature of sprinting is maximum effort, running as fast as you can, putting the maximum amount of effort into that that produces this highly desirable lactate molecule. And oh, by the way, it was seen in the study to be the, the molecule that's produced in the greatest quantity when you do maximum effort exercise. Nothing else was discovered to be producing greater uh, quantities. So yeah, you can produce... Uh, other molecules, testosterone, human growth hormone, myokines, and the like. And myokines are one of my other favorite molecules that also tell you to burn fat and produce muscle, these messaging molecules. But lacti is the ones produced in the most and highly beneficial. And the other interesting thing is it reduces uh, appetite. So as a consequence, when you get optimal levels of lacti, uh, it reduces your cravings for food. So if you are you know, somebody struggles with cravings, you're constantly overeating, you're overweight, you need to go out and sprint. You need to get that molecule into your body. And it's one of the greatest secrets a lot of people don't know about is the necessity to, to sprint in addition to stop pouring gasoline in the fire by continuously eating processed foods. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I was fortunate enough to work on a metabolic cart for over a decade, and I measured that. I was able to see it just measuring people's metabolism. The people that did chronic exercise, lots of jogging, would would be very efficient with their calories, meaning they would burn less calories. And if you've got weight to lose and you want to get those calories out, you want to teach yourself to be very inefficient with your calories. And that's really important. And and I, I, I totally agree with you with the processed foods. Those need to go for sure. My question about sprinting is I see my dogs and they stretch sometimes during the day. But if I just said ball to my dog Rex, he's ready to go. He doesn't need to stretch. He's full sprint as fast as he can for that ball. And so the question would be around frequency and safety. Most people would think about sprinting and think like, I would love to do that, but I don't want to get injured. And how frequently am I able to do this? This is like once a month, once a week. You mentioned every other day. What would you say to both of those things? Yeah, so first of all, I love your question. And you pick up, and it's not just Rex, your dog, but think about a deer, okay? A deer that's in the thick of grass, and it's uh, eating on that grass, and suddenly a wolf shows up, or a lion, a tiger, whatever, uh, a zebra. If it couldn't immediately go from zero to 60, it was that that predator's meal. So the capacity, the necessity to maintain itself in a ready fit condition is an absolute imperative in that those animals know that they're literally, their existence turns on being as healthy as possible. And oh, by the way, that was present within our own lives, our ancestors' lives for 4 million years. Homo sapiens got up every day and lived their life knowing that if they couldn't sprint to get away from a predator, they could die. Or if they couldn't sprint to catch a prey, they may starve to death and not get nutritional value. Not only just starve to death, but they may degrade their performance by not getting enough good access to nutritional resources, food, and the other benefits these predators, I mean, prey would provide us, which is the microbiome. And we probably won't have time. That could be another, if I come back on on your show, case if you have me we talked about the microbiome but to to answer your question is yeah you know the fact that you can't immediately take off like i had a client today unfortunately uh went 
went to CrossFit and uh, he, you know, he's, he's a guy in his sixties and uh, he, he ended up getting a, a, a strain um, because uh, he just sprinted uh, super fast right off the line. So I tell people first and foremostly, the benefit is max effort, not the acceleration. So if you're older and you've got a lot of disease, you can't explode off that line anymore. You got disease and you're going to get exactly what is, you know, is coming your way, a strain or a tear uh, or an injury because of the amount of visceral fat that you've had and the influence. So it's not just the quantity of that visceral fat, but how long you've tolerated it. So there are 20 year old guys that may have more visceral fat inside them than 60 year old guys, but they don't have much influence, you know, exposure to it over a period of time because they've only, they probably only have had it for maybe, I don't know, one to five years or something. But those 60 year old guys have had that visceral fat over a longer period of time. And maybe they have a little bit of it, but the accumulation effect of all those inflammatory molecules have destroyed their muscles and tendons. Their muscles are now filled with all this myomeostosis, these fatty infiltrates, you know, human marbling. And so when they try to take off from that line, they tear that muscle because it's just so inflamed and friable and vulnerable to injury. So I have a, you know, a few videos on sprinting in my YouTube channel that you're uh, audience can go and look to and get started, but I tell people mix it up. You know, one six-year-old is very different from another. Uh, and a, same thing with thirty-year-olds. So some people will be able to sprint more than others, um, and so there is no recommended strategy. But here's what life did: life brought variability. Sometimes we'd go for a week and never sprint. Sometimes we'd be sprinting twenty times a day because we were in battle or you know whatever we were fighting. We were hunting. So variability, I have seen as a defining characteristic or feature that life would bring us. And so our ancestors of old, you know, lived very differently. Life would bring these challenges and it was all about survivability. And so the forces that we were confronted with on a daily basis, threats, you know, that allowed us to, to purposely stay in shape so that we didn't die and eat healthy. We, we knew back then intuitively, I believe not to eat too much fruit, not to eat, you know, uh, eat too much dates and figs, you know, people who eat a lot of dates and figs, sweet tasting things, they degrade their performance. So the, the influence in our lives back then is anthropologically from an anthropology standpoint, known as selection pressure. So it influenced people to make good decisions and figure out what they got to do every single day throughout the day so they didn't get eliminated from the gene pool, most importantly. And secondly, they improved their quality of life. They had more food, they had more animal skins, and they basically lived a, a better lifestyle. So, yeah, there's no real strong answer to that variability. You want to start very slowly accelerating because if you explode off that in a disease state, you're going to get, like my client did today, uh, a, a muscle strain or a tendon strain or, you know, injury of some kind. So start slow, slowly accelerate uh, is the rule of thumb. But recognize, yeah, you're that, that disease. Animals don't need to warm up. And that's the way you should be. But for the fact you have lived an unhealthy life and accumulated all that visceral fat. Yeah, that's amazing. That is so well explained. I think that's really approachable for everybody. This has been an amazing conversation. I know we both have to go out and go save some lives today. Um, we would love to have you back. I definitely have more questions about diet and, and specifically fermented foods and vegetables, which is a little bit of an, uh, a, a tricky subject in the carnivore world. So I would love to explore that with you later on another episode. If you'd be willing to come back, we would love to continue this conversation another time. But for today, Dr. Sean O'Mara, where can people go to find you and connect with you and your work? Yeah, so they can follow me on Instagram. Anybody is on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sean O'Mara. So at D-R-S-E-A-N-O-M-A-R-A. And I'm also on YouTube under Dr. D-R period, Sean, S-E-A-N-O-M-A-R-A. And I have a website uh, for clients that are really motivated. I only study alphas. Because I have more clients or more people after me than I can possibly follow to provide care for as clients. But if you're super motivated, super high, you know, performing, and you're willing to come here, 
don't even bother calling me if you're not willing to come to me. That means you're not, health's not that important. But if you're willing to come to me in Minneapolis, that's my first litmus test, then uh, I'll work with you. And you can find out more information about that, www.drseanomara. So <clears throat> just my name, drseanomara.com. And you can find out more information about potentially working with me. I'm looking for you if you're a high performer. I study alphas. That is amazing. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Talk about role models, dude. Talk about role models. You are a role model. 59, kicking ass, thriving, and getting better and better with age. We absolutely love that content. We love your message. we so much looking forward to having you back on. Dr. Sean O'Mara, thank you so very much for appearing on our show today. And thank you for everything you do. We really appreciate you. Well, <clears throat> thank you very much, Casey, for the invitation. I look forward to come back and talk about ferments and the microbiome. I think we're, we can really help the carnivore community to just have an open-mindedness to it. Uh, super, super interesting. I think it's highly beneficial. I love that. That sounds like a great idea. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It has been such a joy to go on this journey now that it's been two years of doing these episodes and all the amazing conversations that we've had with thought leaders and to be able to share this message around the world with literally hundreds of thousands of people has been so amazing. If you haven't already, please go over to Apple, leave us a rating and review as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and touch more lives of people out there. I am so excited to announce that we are launching the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. This is something that I have been working really hard at for a very long time and something I am very proud of. Now that we have done over 300 episodes, our content can be a little bit overwhelming if you really want to learn about one particular topic and really zero in on that topic. So that is exactly what I have done. I have gone through all of our episodes, taken the very best clips all about one particular topic and put them into long form very informative and concise episodes called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. That can be found on our brand new Patreon page, which I'm really excited to announce as we have all kinds of different offers there and different tiers. We're including early releases of our show, Boundless Body Radio. We typically keep about 15 to 20 episodes scheduled at any given time. So we have options there where you can have early access to those. We're also offering group and one-on-one coaching and also access to these premium podcast episodes, the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. We have three that are launching right now, and I will be making a new one every other week. And we believe that we are providing these for a very, very high value. So please check us out on Patreon, check the link in the notes to be able to get there. And thank you as always for listening to Boundless Body Radio.